Hey, I'm Zach, and welcome back to the IB Voices Podcast. Today's guest probably needs no introduction. For those of you who have been in the IB community for the better part of our past 50 years, you'll know this man just by the sound of his laughter or his commanding, gravelly voice. Of course, I am talking about the man, the myth, the legend, the IB's longest tenured employee, Mr. Paul Campbell. With the IB Americas Conference coming up later this year in Toronto, Canada, it felt like the perfect time to sit down with Paul and talk about the history of the IB Conference, how it fits into the greater IB mission, and reflect on some of Paul's fondest memories of previous conferences. I think you'll really enjoy this one. Thank you for joining me this morning, Paul. Thanks, Zach. Um, so before we get into talking about the conference, it'd be great if you could just introduce yourself, how long you've been with the IB, and how you found your way to the IB. So my name is Paul Campbell, and I've been with the IB for 31 years. I think I'm the longest serving employee amongst the current IB staff worldwide, um, almost accidentally, because uh, I was trained as a journalist in um, college, and I worked as a journalist in the New York City area. During that time, I began to work at nonprofits. I found that work much more satisfying than journalism. And when I was deciding whether to go back to school or whether to quit journalism, um, a job opportunity arose based on somebody I'd worked with at one of those nonprofits at an organization called International Baccalaureate, which I had not heard of. I don't think many people had heard of it in 1988. I always joke that I got the job because I was the only applicant who spelled baccalaureate correctly. <laughs> um, and there was four of us at a small office near the Empire State Building in Manhattan. Um, and um, I've done a little bit of everything since. Um, I've moved with the organization from New York to D.C., watched it grow from 250 schools to 5,000 schools, from one program to four programs. Um, and what I always say is I, I, I needed a job, which became a career, which became a mission, which is becoming a legacy. So was education always something that was important to you? Uh, if you look at my own educational record, uh, the evidence says no. <laughs> uh, if you look at my family history and my respect for teachers, educators, and my you know, my incipient understanding of the importance of education as a leveler of all playing fields, the answer is definitely yes. Yeah. So within your 31 years at the IB, the inception of the global conference came about, correct? Yeah, that's fair. And I won't go into too many details, but um, there used to be here uh, in North America, because the North American... Um, organization was actually a separate nonprofit that served the U.S. and Canada. These summer conferences that were hosted by schools or school districts in the 80s, very informal. Uh, I think they were affectionately called clam bakes, but they weren't run by the IB. And so they were in places that whoever stepped up, they were in Chicago, they were in Winnipeg, they were in Covington, Kentucky, outside of Cincinnati. Some of the early schools um, decided that they would gather people just for, you know, a kind of discussion of how to do it right. Yeah. Because back then, there were so few schools uh, and they were so scattered that I think they felt a really strong need to come together um, to be with people who understood what they were going through. Yeah. And it's so easy to connect, obviously, today. Yeah. Online. I mean, in, 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 back then, 
you know, it was a real uh, physical and financial commitment. In 1992, and I'd been to work, you know, there for four years for the Abbey at that point, the, um, the organization decided to take over that conference and run it somewhat more formally and professionally. Sure. And so the very first conference in 1992 was in Breckenridge, Colorado, and I've been to all 27 or 28 conferences since. And along the way, the other global conferences and the other parts of the world came on board, mostly modeled after this North American conference. I see. So what were like the, the highlights of the first? Uh, the first conference was typical of the first decade, maybe, of the conferences. It was only the diploma program. Everybody knew everybody. It was very much like a club. But it was a club of like-minded people who were really idealistic and forward-looking. So I think the intimacy and the sense of shared purpose. Um, most of our speakers back then were you know, senior staff people, not necessarily outsiders. But from the very beginning, Zach, there was this feeling of the need to connect and to celebrate because this is something that was transforming schools. But again, it was a very well-kept secret at the time. So I think it was the joy that people you know, felt when they were with people they didn't have to explain themselves to. <laughs> so how did the secret come out? Quarter century of day-to-day efforts and mostly I think the, the way in which the IB itself expanded and now is available for elementary school, even pre-K, for middle school, for high school. You know, you can be an IB student from your first day of school to your last, whether you're in private school, public school, Catholic school, Jewish school, Islamic school, small school, large school, urban school, rural school. And as a result, a lot more people began to speak the language. Mm -hmm. And while I went to these conferences and helped out, I didn't have a formal role until 2006. And that's when things began to change because I'd been to a lot of national educational conferences here and I saw the way they were run. So I started to bring in outside speakers, uh, upgrade the program, uh, bring in exhibitors, sponsors, and other supporters because I felt that in previous to that, we had an IB conference. But I wanted us to have an educational conference with the IB at its center, Mm -hmm. rather than a kind of privately held conference only for the IB. I wanted everybody to feel welcome, regardless of where they were in their journey. That's great. You can definitely see that when you go to the conference, because even though, like this past year's was in New Orleans, it wasn't just people from the US, it was people from Canada, people from South America, and it was, I even met people from Europe. Yeah, and I think Australia and, you know, now these three conferences worldwide attract about 2,000 people each every summer. And it would be typical for a conference to have people from 30 or 40 countries. And it also would be typical, and this is important, for not every single person that's there to be directly involved in the IB. For instance, universities, uh, researchers, alumni, um, senior staff, um, and a whole broad array that make up the community. I have said for a long time, ever since I took charge of the conference here in the Americas, that the IB is not an organization, it's not an assessment, it's not a curriculum, it's a movement. And so this is the summer revival. You know, this is when people come together, most of them have been on a school schedule where they were just finished with school, but they were getting ready to go back. 
Those who were on um, the Southern Hemisphere schedule were mid-year. What they all needed was um, inspiration, connection, ideas, uh, and I think that's why the conferences, not only in the Americas, but elsewhere, have flourished. Why do you think that people who teach the IB programs or work with the IB have this need, almost passion to connect? I mean, I think you just answered your own question. The passion that is attached to being involved in the IB is remarkable compared to other educational programs. Other educational programs have their conferences. Some are bigger. But the sense of identity that people feel when they're at an IB school, whether they're a teacher, an administrator, a student, a parent, or community leader, is unusual, if not unique. It certainly is powerful. And I think that... We're still not that big, let's be clear. You know, I may think we're big because we're 20 times bigger than we were when I started. But in the grand scheme of, uh, you know, the educational world, we're still relatively small. There's still a lot of people who know a little bit about us, but not that much. Mm -hmm. There's still a great comfort in being together with people who already understand. And my attitude about the conference is, I want these people for these three and a half days to understand how important they are. Yeah. My philosophy is that these are teachers and principals, assistant principals, coordinators, school board members. They're not necessarily used to being treated well. They're held responsible for a lot of things beyond their control. They're not necessarily paid that well. And sometimes the school year can be a real grind, but they deserve to be treated like a world-class attendees and so that's what we aspire to so they leave with a sense of connection and a sense of uh, energy to take on the next challenge yeah and I think they also leave very inspired by these outside speakers that you mentioned earlier I'd love to hear if you remember who some of the earliest speakers were. I do. Yeah, I mean, I've been responsible for the speakers. I mean, it's a collaborative venture. It's gotten to the point where so many people send me so many suggestions that we keep a running uh, list, and I think there's about 200 names on it. But there are people that I remember as kind of breakthrough speakers. Ken Robinson, who everybody knows, you know, Dan Pink, probably the speaker that threw people off, but inspired them was uh, Khaled Hosseini, the author of Kite Runner, uh, who knew a little bit about the IB, but a lot about uh, international affairs. Sometimes they're well known, or well enough known. Last year, we had Ishmael Bia, who people who know him as an author and activist and a former child soldier know his story well. Most often, they're people who have something very powerful to say, but they're not famous in their own right. I'm not looking for people whose name is recognized. I'm looking for people whose story will resonate. And it just so happened that last year in New Orleans, we had three extraordinary speakers from very different walks of life, all of whom were amazing. It was clearly in the, I don't know, I guess 11 or 12 years that I've been choosing the speakers with all the wonderful speakers we've had, you know, over the years, it was by far the most coherent and over-the-top, mountaintop experience. (laughs) So other than the conference being formalized more over the years and bringing in outside speakers, are there any other ways that the conference has evolved? I think it's that effort to include people rather than exclude people, you know, and for the conference to be seen as a conference sponsored by the IB, but not necessarily just about the IB. Mm -hmm. 
it's also very interesting because you're gathering people from very different backgrounds, not just linguistically or in terms of their national origin or their gender or all the different ways in which we define difference, but very different kinds of schools, Hmm. um, private schools and public schools. And it just so happens that in our region, public schools are the dominant force, which is not true elsewhere in the IB world. Uh, so I think the one of the really important things that has happened that I have worked really hard on is to find the common ground between these different educational environments, with the IB being the common language, uh, to honor the importance of all those different kinds of schools. I think that's a, a real feature of the conference that we seek that place where all those people can set aside those differences, which are substantial, but at the end of the day are somewhat artificial to share in the common language of the IB. Mm-hmm. We also have done some very sensible things like brought in very high profile sponsors. We've had Apple, we've had Google, we have a lot of other companies that have products or services that are uniquely designed for IB, and we don't see them as some group that we set aside in a big room. We actually see them as part of our community. So we embrace them and want them to come to sessions, and and we eat with them, and we share coffee with them, and we may visit their tables and talk about what they do, but more importantly, uh, we connect with them as partners in what we're trying to accomplish. When I left New Orleans, which was my first conference, I was on the plane back home and I thought, oh, this was Comic-Con for teachers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the year before we were in San Diego, right after Comic-Con, which is hilarious because they were still taking down these huge, like 10 story high, you know, representations of comic book heroes. And I think, why don't you put up some teachers up there? But uh, we let them take those down and we proceeded to have our largest (laughs) conference ever in 2018 they're all good and they each one of them evokes a different memory for me which whether it's of people or whether it's of place or whether it's of both um, you know it's something that I've grown very very attached to are there any specific memories you'd like to share one I remember well was a few months ago in New Orleans Ishmael Bia was our closing speaker Ishmael Bia Uh, whose whole family was killed when he was 12 in Sierra Leone during the Civil War and who was forced to fight as a child soldier uh, in the wilds for five years and somehow got plucked from that and ended up at an IB school in New York and proceeded to write a book called A Long Way Gone and uh, a a second book and become, you know, an advocate for... um, you know, people who are war-torn, especially young people. And uh, we always uh, invite an alumnus, somebody who had done the IB somewhere or was still doing the IB to introduce the major speakers. And there was a young man named Marcus Renault who we had stumbled upon, who had just finished um, four years at Yale, who was from New Orleans, who had to leave during Katrina because it interrupted his education, who came back, got the IB diploma at a public school, got a full ride to Yale, and who was determined to spend his life reforming education in New Orleans, particularly when it comes to the way in which young African-American men are marginalized. 
And he essentially had put together this incredibly eloquent manifesto. And we sat there and it got so quiet in the room because he went way beyond just introducing Ishmael. You know, he hit a nerve about one of the most important issues in public education today. And when he was done, Ishmael got up and, you know, people were just going crazy. And Ishmael said, well, you know, anybody that worries about the future of young black men in this country should listen to Marcus. Those moments, those shining moments that have happened over and over again in the, you know, 25 years that I've been involved with the conference. Sounds like Toronto has a tough act to follow. One thing that's really important to remember when you're involved in the IB is it's an international organization. We have schools in 150 countries. Our second largest country is Canada. It has been forever. Many of our best schools are in Canada. Uh, the Canadians are way too modest about this. And so not only do we go to Canada often, but when we are in Canada, we remember that we're in Canada. Uh, and we make sure the Canadian perspective is represented, uh, particularly the bilingual perspective of um, Canada. So we have French language sessions and French language speakers. But in, last time we were in Toronto, uh, my final speaker was an author named Margaret Atwood. Ah, I've heard of her. Yeah, I thought you might have. <laughs> this was right before the, the Handmaid's Tale became a, uh, a phenomenon. And she just delighted us because she grew, grew up in a family of scientists, but she's a humanist. And I asked her to write a defense of the liberal arts. And she did so in such classic fashion with that twinkle in her eye, no showmanship. But, you know, this kind of penetrating analysis of the importance of being well-rounded, of being able to look at problems from a variety of perspectives. So yet, Toronto in 2020 uh, has a tough act to follow in New Orleans, but also has a tough act to follow from Toronto in 2016. <laughs> so with that, can you pitch, why should schools go to Toronto? First, Toronto is the most diverse city in the world. Over 50% of the people that live in Toronto were born outside of Canada, not just outside of Toronto. You know, in Toronto, you feel the vibrancy of multiculturalism. It's not just a slogan. It's alive and well. We also have some of our best schools in Toronto. And uh, frankly, you know, this is not a bad time to go to Canada because of the exchange rate. You can, you can have a really good uh, vacation in Canada. You should come early go to Niagara-on-the-Lake, go to the wineries, go to Niagara Falls if you have to, don't go over in a barrel, uh, but revel in what this unique city has to offer. And then, for those three and a half days, come together with your peers uh, and learn new strategies and teach each other and connect with people from all over the world who you stay connected to and listen and share and celebrate. That's amazing. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Zach. That's Paul, just name-dropping Margaret Atwood, as one does, no biggie. <laughs> okay, so if you want to catch up with Paul and the IB community, register now for the IB Americas Conference in Toronto, Canada. You can still sign up at the early bird price until March, so visit ibo.org slash globalconferencetoronto. 
grab your IB friends and register today. I'll also put a link in this episode's description. That's a wrap for today. Join us next time for more stories from our students, schools, educators, and more. And see you in Toronto. Thanks for listening.